welcome back to Too Many Comics. Um, Brooks, it's been quite a while, uh, you know, sadly on our part, that we haven't done an interview spectacular. Um, far too long, but uh, happily today to uh, to be joined by creator, writer of Spencer Unlock. And uh, before I even try to uh, potentially embarrass myself, I'm just going to have you introduce yourself because uh, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Sure. I'm David Peppos, the writer of <laughs> Oh, it's I, don't get me wrong. It's it might I've lived with this last name for over 30 years. It's very much a choose your own adventure. I've heard every possible permutation. I've had all sorts of letters added and subtracted. It is no problem. But for anyone who's curious, I'm David Peppos and it's nice to be here. You know, I I think of all the versions we guessed, we did not pick that one. I don't think we, I don't think we picked that one. I don't think we picked that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least at the end, it throws everybody. At least yeah. saved us from butchering it and making a fool of ourselves. But we <laughs> wanted to ask on the show that way, anyone that listens in and would potentially ever meet you somewhere would would know and have the knowledge. Yeah, so, no, no worries whatsoever. No worries whatsoever. I've heard it. I've heard it much worse. So well, we, we actually, I, I think, we, as we post this interview, I think we will even do the phonetic of your name, <laughs> just so it's, it's cleared okay. to all once and for all. Let's settle this. So. <laughs> So we uh, we do appreciate you coming on. Uh, we know that you're, you're putting some pub out there for vo- for volume two that, that's set to uh, to kick off. And uh, you know, you mentioned before we started recording that that Brooks and I briefly talked about uh, volume one on, on the last episode of, of the show that, that came out yesterday. Um, so you know, we were pumped that you, that you shared the first issue with with volume two with us. And uh, you know, I'm sure we'll dive deeper into the books and, and the characters in a bit. But for for those that haven't that haven't read that may not have, have heard of Spencer and Locke, uh, you know, what is what is the brief elevator pitch that, that you give to people that, that maybe ask yeah. what you do or, or ask about the book? Well, uh, you know, the easy elevator pitch for Spencer and Locke is what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City? Uh, it's about a hard-boiled cop and his imaginary talking panther uh, as they solve the murder of uh, this cop's childhood sweetheart. So I say it's a little true detective, it's a little fight club, and it's 100% our love letter to classic Bill Watterson and Frank Miller. Um, so... That was our first series. Um, it followed hard-boiled Detective Locke and his seven-foot-tall imaginary blue panther, Spencer, as they investigated the murder of uh, Locke's childhood sweetheart, Sophie Jenkins. Uh, and uh, so they wind up confronting a lot of tormentors from Locke's childhood. Uh, as, as we find out, they had a very traumatic upbringing. And that's the reason why Locke carries his imaginary friend with him as an adult. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was, you know, a, a, a fun kind of first series for us. Uh, this was my very first book actually. And, um, uh, we were nominated for five Ringo awards, uh, for our first series. Uh, we, we lost in all of our categories to <laughs> Tom King, but what a guy to lose to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's done some um, good things. Okay. Yeah. You know, just that small indie writer, Tom King. Um, but you know, it's, it, the, the response to our series has been really incredible. And that's why we were so excited, uh, that action lab, our publisher, uh, asked us to come back with a volume two. So, um, I guess just to, to steamroll ahead, uh, we are taking the fables approach for volume two and no comic strip is safe anymore. (laughs) I mean, I'm. I'm on board with that approach. That was also a very, very great run, Fables. That's yeah. Bill Willingham, uh, mm-hmm. one of my favorite series of all time. Instead of doing a world where all the fairy tale characters live in the same universe, we're doing a world where sort of our dark, twisted analogs of the Sunday funnies all live in the same world. Uh, and so, so, uh, 
All right. So at the risk of spoiling your plans or, or, or the book so far, so obviously we have Calvin and Hobbes. We might have Beetle, Beetle Bailey. Yes. Uh, any any other any other strips that might be uh, showing yeah. up in the near our, future or distant? Our Beetle analog, Roach Riley, is you know he's he really takes the lion's share of the school. Um, you know he's our main villain. He's sort of our our Heath Ledger Joker, uh, so to speak. So I do consider him like a co lead. Uh, with Spencer and Locke. But we have all sorts of supporting characters, cameos, Easter eggs. Um, we have uh, our riff on Brenda Starr. We have High and Lois. We have uh, Marmaduke, The Family Circus, uh, Hagger the Horrible. Uh, those are just a few off the top of my head. Nancy, that uh, <laughs> in before the Nancy relaunch. Uh, I apologize to Olivia James in advance. <laughs> Slow slit. Um, and. Uh, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. We do have uh, a few more that I don't want to spoil just yet. Because so uh, you're saying you're saying still no love for Kathy. Still no love. You know, I mean, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so what? So the going back to sort sort of the beginnings of the book. Um, you know, I'm interested in you know your your relationship with with Jorge. Um, yeah. You know, did you guys know each other beforehand? Did did you both have the love of Calvin and Hobbes and sort of presented the idea, or you know, how did that whole working relationship come together? Um, so actually, I we did not know each other. In fact, the you know the sad twist of everything is uh, Jorge and I still have not met face to face yet. Uh, we're hoping really? to at Heroes Con this wow. year. Wow, we've been working together uh, since uh, the fall of 2014. I think, and uh, yeah, we've we've we have yet to be in the same room together. That's pretty awesome. Um, and it's just it's just because we're in the uh, we're on opposite coasts, so we don't usually overlap in conventions very much, um, or we we have yet to overlap in conventions, I should say. And uh, so we, we're making it a point. I've told him. I said I'm tabling at Heroes. You should come with me. So, uh, knock on wood, as long as he's able to do that, uh, we'll have our first joint signing together. Um, you know, um, but, uh, yeah, the way that I found Jorge was, um, it took me a while to kind of get to the point of deciding to write a book. Um, I had worked as a reviewer at Newsarama for a long time. And before that I was an editorial intern at DC comics, but the idea of like, Oh, you could write a comic. That was like, never, that was like a forbidden idea. Um, and so when I finally kind of got the gumption to try it, I looked at a bunch of other creators, uh, their breakout books. And the book that really stood out to me was Justin Jordan uh, with The Strange Talent of Luther Strode. And uh, I don't know if, you know, for people who haven't read that, um, you know, it's about a, a scrawny kid who, who uh, discovers what's basically the Charles Atlas method of bulking up. But it turns out that turns him into like basically a superhuman fighter. Uh, and the, Justin is a smart guy, story machine, great dude. But the smartest thing I think he did in that book was he hooked up with Trad Moore, uh, his artist. Uh, Trad is just a force of nature, and you could see that even in these in his first book. And so I thought, well, you know, that work is undeniably beautiful. Like you can't not look at it. You, and so I thought, where's the next Trad Moore going to come from? You know. Mm. So Trad, uh, he was a graduate of the Savannah College of Art and Design, uh, and so I looked at a lot of the comic art schools, uh, and so places like SCAD. SVA, RISD, the Kubert School. Um, I looked at all of them, and anybody who posted a portfolio from these schools, I would take a look, and if I liked them, I'd, I'd hit them up. And uh, Jorge really kind of drew me in very quickly. Um, 
He's very fluid and energetic with his action sequences, uh, which is is always very appealing to me because I like to write action. But he was also very expressive with his characters, which I thought was kind of a a, a good thing for this series. Um, you know, because I thought it was going to be particularly kind of character driven and emotional. Um, and I also liked the fact that he wasn't like hyper rendered. He wasn't uh, uh, crazy, like gritty and realistic. I thought that would kind of help, um, you know, keep this book from being too oppressive. So, uh, you know, I didn't realize at the time he was actually about to graduate from SCAD from his MFA program. So it was really the right place, at the right time. He was looking for work and uh, I was looking for uh, an artist who was as hungry as I was. And uh, it really it, it really worked out perfectly. Um, you know, Jorge is just a, a, a real craftsman, a real artist's artist. And um, I've never once thought, oh, can Jorge handle whatever weird stuff I throw at him? I just write it down and I just kind of assume, oh, he'll, he'll figure out a way. And I, I feel bad because then he usually sees my scripts and he has to be like, oh, God, how am I going to do this? It's a car. <laughs> Oh God, it's a sci-fi planet. Oh God, how am I going to do this? And you know what? He never, never shows me a, a sign of doubt. He always knocks it clear out of the park. And so, um, I've been very fortunate to work with him and I, I plan on doing so as long as he, uh, allows me to ride his coattails. Yeah. I was, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in how you, how you lay that out too, with, with what you provide him. Cause I think in, in interviews we've done in the past and just, um, you know, letters, columns that we, that we read in the book, what I always find interesting is the, the, that relationship between artist um, and and writer, and that you'll see some people who are very specific to what the what they want the scene to be. It's it's very much a not dictator like, but you know it's a you know that they want to see a specific thing, and it's kind of just tasked to draw that. Whereas some other people are here's the general idea, you know, here's what I want them doing, and here's the letters, and you know what they're going to be saying. Other than that, you know, throw in some visual comedy, some visual cues. Um, right. it sounds like you guys lean more along that side of he's, he's got some freedom to work with and yeah, I mean, make- what we do, what we do is, is we're sort of, we're sort of like in the middle of, 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 of that because what we do is usually, uh, Jorge and I, we go back and forth and we talk and discuss a lot, uh, in the thumbnail and panel layout stages uh, of the process. Um, what I usually do, and I know a lot of writers do not do this, but I, I try to think of things, uh, you know, I try to pace it out on the page myself when I'm, when I'm writing the scripts. And so I'll usually send Jorge just some like very rough panel layouts, just saying, Hey buddy, here's what I was thinking when I wrote it. If you've got a better way of doing this though, like have at it. Um, but I try to sort of make sure that if I can't paste this thing in my head or if I can't sort of draw it out and figure out how it's going to work on a page, I shouldn't be expecting an artist to sort of like figure it out. Um, and then, yeah, we'll go back and forth. We'll sort of talk, you know, cause sometimes, you know, Jorge's the professional. Um, he'll be the one who'll say, Oh, well, like we can't do this for this reason. And so then we'll figure out, all right, like what can we do that either sort of gets us to from point A to point B, like we need to be, or, you know, what's a workaround. Um, and we like to send each other a lot of reference art a lot. Um, you know, the cool thing about Jorge is he, he comes from a, a, a very diverse manga background. Um, you know, Ranma one half, um, you know, those were sort of the, his seminal, uh, texts for him. Whereas for me, I came from a very meat and potato superhero background, uh, you know, big two, I grew up in uh, St. Louis in the nineties. So mm-hmm. I really didn't have, you know, besides the occasional issue of wizard, I, you know, this was before the comics internet was a thing. I really didn't have 
access to a lot of uh, creator-owned stuff, you know, occasionally Spawn or Crimson, you know, if, the, if a trade would hit Barnes & Noble. But um, it's kind of cool with the two of us kind of occasionally throwing reference at each other um, because I think we're able to sort of uh, synthesize the two approaches and really deliver the best of both worlds. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, we tend to have a, a, a lot of back and forth, a lot of communication. You know, books our size at our publisher, you know, um, Action Lab, like it's not like we're sort of turning everything in to an editor for approvals. It's more of it's it's all kind of going through me. So I, I keep in a lot of close contact with uh, with Jorge and our colorist Jason Smith and our letterer Colin Bell, and sort of the story kind of metamorphosizes a bit with each stage, and you know, sort of my script feeds Jorge's uh, inks, which feeds Jason's colors, which then Colin's letters. We sometimes that you know the story gets changed in the lettering stage. Uh, not dramatically, but if Jorge draws something that is a little different than what I wrote, then oh, sometimes you gotta kind of make a, a course correction. Um, it's a little like filmmaking in a way, you know. There's the story you've scripted, and then the story that the director shoots, and then there's the story that the editor cuts. And uh, you know, there's these. Uh, it changes a little from stage to stage. All right, so I, I have a question, but you hit on so many things that I wanted to ask about, but I got to yeah. stay on task here. First of all, Wizard Magazine, that's touches my soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, going to pick up things at Barnes & Noble because you just didn't have a- access to books is also hilarious. If you mention Walden Books, we just shut the whole thing down. Oh, but- yeah. I did, I did Walden Books. R.I.P. I bought my first ever comic ever at Walden Books ex- on Connect X-Men 268 uh, when I was going to Hawaii in fourth grade. That's how far back we go. But uh, let's go back to the story of your book. Yeah. So you know we we've gotten some some bits here and there about Locke's past, and obviously it was it was tragic and abusive and everything else, which I think sort of informs why he has an imaginary friend. Do you plan to devote you know longer form in a book, or just tease it for time more about what that looked like and really how this relationship became so important to him as an adult? Well, so uh, what we you know it's one of those things I like to tease it. Um, you know, I think of Locke's past, and we actually, you know, we, we tie upon this in the first issue of our sequel, is um, it's a little bit like a Rorschach test. Um, you know, we're, we, we really cut to just the most important traumas of his life, uh, because of those are the things that shape him. Uh, you know, and then also, you know, we, we do cut occasionally to some of the more lighthearted moments of their past as well, because, you know, I, I think Locke and Spencer are both kind of three-dimensional characters, and yeah, they had a really rough upbringing, but like they had moments that, you know, were light and, and had levity as well. Um, you know, it's one of those things, I, I, I like those sort of snapshots of the past rather than living in it full time. Um, I think that's kind of how memory works in a lot of ways. You know, you, you really kind of remember the big moments that drive you. Um, and it's not even, you know, you're not thinking, oh, this is what I was doing for five years, or this is, you know, this was a relationship I was in for however long. You just think of like the quick moments that really stood out to you. Um, and it also kind of lets readers uh, choose their own adventure a little bit. Um, I kind of like that idea of trusting readers enough to draw their own interpretations and their own conclusions. Um, Cause I think it's kind of cool. Um, and some of the reactions that we get are like really insightful and engaging. And I'm kind of like, Oh yeah. Like we wrote that with enough wiggle room that like, yeah, that could be a very valid interpretation. Uh, yes. Okay. So, I mean, we've had the opportunity to read, uh, volume two 
And yeah. I think, and I, Al and I have not discussed it in great deal, detail, but to me, it, it definitely is taking a, a bit of a darker turn. Is yeah. this something that you see happening even more, or is this just sort of a blip? Or I mean, because again, we both enjoyed Volume 1 very much. It was yeah. a little bit lighter. So how do you see balancing, you know, a, I mean, obviously, abusive childhood, that's that's tough. Sure. Then you mix in things like Sin City and, and other elements that you're trying to hit on. Yeah. What, what can we expect going forward and, and in terms of, like, just tone? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I keep saying that uh, Spencer and Locke, too, it's very much our Empire Strikes Back. It's very much our Dark Knight. And I don't invoke either of those trilogies lightly. Uh, you know, those are very much, you know, those movies, uh, The Godfather Part Two. those were movies that Jorge and I referred to a lot when we were talking back and forth about how we wanted to put this together. Because I like those sequels and the fact that they... They escalate the world, and and, and uh, they escalate the world around them, and they sort of make everything much more expansive and larger, but they still keep the problems personal to the protagonist, um, and that's kind of what we're doing for Spencer and Locke too. Is you know we're pitting Locke against kind of you know his dark opposite. Uh, Roach Riley uh, was the sole survivor of his platoon, uh, and we'll be we'll be uh, you know punctuating the series with flashbacks from his perspective. And he saw something over there that really kind of broke him. Um, he's sort of sustained just as much pain and suffering as Locke, but in a much more accelerated time. And he's come back the other side with some very disturbing philosophies about pain and suffering. Uh, you might say he's almost found religion. And he's kind of come back to sort of spread that good word to as many people as possible. And I, I thought that was it, it was important because, you know, this series is very much about kind of our scars and our pain and what do we do with them? Um, you know, can we transcend them? Can we overcome them? Can we move past them? Are we always going to be defined by them? Uh, and the case of Roach, he's, he kind of represents that very dark nihilism that I, you know, I, I, we didn't see it quite as much when I wrote this series. I, I wrote this series well over a year and a half ago. Um, but I feel like it kind of we're, we're kind of ahead of the curve a little bit. I feel like we're seeing that more and more and more often. And so I, I see Locke and Roach is is very much a war of ideas as as much as a physical conflict because you know it's very easy to kind of succumb to that casual viciousness. Um, or you know, in the case of Locke, you know, he's kind of he has to decide: is there a better way to do this than just violence for violence's sake? Uh, given given that that change of tone that that Brooks was that you know referring to and and you, and you touched on there, how I guess how far out how was the story planned when you initially started putting it together? I mean, you mentioned Action Lab, you know, welcoming you guys back. Was it planned, you know, before you start on the first yeah. one that hey, a second arc might be a little darker? Um, so the, the hardest thing about Volume One was not spilling the beans of my ideas for volume two. Um, the idea of, of having Roach and sort of taking the fables approach for volume two has been in my back pocket since before I actually emailed Jorge. Um, that always felt like kind of an organic way to escalate. Um, you know, when I was reading, I, I, I grew up in uh, St. Louis uh, in the 90s, and I was reading the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I was reading the comic section every day. And all these different characters, uh, you know, all these different strips lived on the same page. So it felt like a very organic way to uh, expand our universe by having them all live in the same world. So um, that is that's been a part of the plan for the longest time. And really, uh, you know, the only sort of it, it just took us a little while just to make sure that like, OK, our sales were 
decent enough that like they were good enough that it was we could justify taking the time to do a sequel and that Actualab wanted us back and honestly you know after you know finishing the book and after sort of doing publicity for the book and doing cons and and the Ringo Awards um it was uh you know Hori and I both kind of turned to each other and we're like yeah we've got some unfinished business with these characters there's there's a lot that we can still say about them um, and there's a lot of different sort of action movie tropes that we can uh, sort of interrogate and subvert and different kind of psychological depths that we can plumb thanks to having a character like Roach. And uh, so it just it just was a no brainer. Um, you know, I was I was really excited. It took a while to kind of crack the code for Roach's headspace. Uh, but once I did, that's when the story really started flowing. Um, that's when like the themes really started to kind of pop out at me. And, um, thankfully I kind of knew where this series was going to wind up years ago. So that gave me enough, like cool sort of, uh, uh, bits in the roadmap to, to, to follow. And then I could, you know, Jorge and I could kind of riff on the way there. Um, and since you've, you know, trying to find a way to, to work it in. I've, I've read some interviews with you where you can't speak a whole lot about the movie process. You know, you've mentioned yeah. comparing it to, to, to trilogies then to, to function off your work a little bit. Yeah. Um, any details about sort of how that came to be? Were you approached? Did you pitch it? And then, you know, one of the larger questions that Brooks and I have is, is it people or cartoons? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, can say, I can say right now the current plan is live action with a, with a CGI Spencer. Okay. Uh, I believe that was sort of the last, the, the, that's the most recent we've discussed. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, the, you're right that there's not a whole lot I can say about our, our current multimedia plans other than we've had some really cool conversations with some really talented people. Um, and so I, I have fingers crossed we'll be able to sort of talk more openly about it soon. Um, you know, I'm based in Los Angeles. And so like, I've been kind of on the ground floor of, of, of this process. Um, the way that we sort of got injected into the Hollywood sphere in the first place was, was kind of an interesting story in that, um, you know, I, we announced our series in the Hollywood reporter. Um, a, a friend of mine from college, uh, is now their, uh, Hollywood, uh, awards analyst. And, uh, so I, I, I talked with him and there were some people that I knew from the blogosphere, uh, from my work at Newsarama, who also wrote at the Hollywood Reporter, so I was kind of able to do like a full court press to say, "Hey guys, like, I want you guys to be the first ones to announce it because I know that's sort of, you know, if we want to have a, a multimedia shelf life, this would be the best way to go about doing it." And um, but the way that we actually had been optioned uh, was kind of a, a, a very strange coincidence. It's very serendipitous. Um, my local comic shop. Uh, was the comic bug. I, I, I used to live in Redondo before I moved into the city. And uh, the comic bug in Manhattan Beach was my local store. And honestly, they're, they're one of the most wonderful stores I've ever been to. I, I still visit from time to time. And, uh, uh, you know, there's just a big sense of community. And the owner, Mike Wellman, um, is just a wonderful guy. I love him to death. The first time I ever walked into the comic bug, it was, it was at least a month before we announced the book. And I just wanted to make friends with my local shop. And I, I walked in there and I said, hi, my name is David Pepos. I just moved down here. I'm a comics creator and they're going to be announcing my book at New York Comic Con next month. And I'll never forget Mike literally getting up from behind the, the register, 
walking me back to the back of the shop um, every week, they do what's called the sketchy bugs, where literally uh, local creators, um, you know, will come and just kind of, you know, do their work with a bunch of other people. And there's a lot of aspiring creators and a lot of readers and, uh, you know, who are looking to sort of make their first big shot. And uh, Mike, you know, introduced me to everybody like I had been writing for years. And so I'll never forget that. Um, and Mike was so supportive of us that um, a, a producer, actually, uh, who was one of his customers, uh, Mike slipped him a copy of our first issue. And he said, hey, you should really take a look at this book. It's going to be something special. Uh, so, yeah, we that's how we got options. Um, it was literally just our local comic shop owner slipped a copy of our book to a Hollywood producer. And we were sort of off to the races. Um, you know, and things, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, it's Hollywood. So there's always a lot of back and forth and there's a lot of stop and start. And, um, you know, there's always sort of new, new players sort of coming in and coming out. But, um, we've had some really cool conversations, some really talented people. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think this will be a really good year for, uh, for Spencer and Locke, both on the page and on the screen. All right. I was going to let you go. Go ahead. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. All right, so before we go into a, a segment that we, we do with every uh, interview, um, so what do you read these days? What, what are the books that you're into and uh, either over time or now? Or, so yeah. what are your books? Well, so the books, uh, the books I'm, I'm liking now, um, I'm, I'm actually doing a, a reread of uh, Mr. Miracle, uh, the, the Tom King, Mitch Garrett's book. Um, I just got the, the trade paperback today, so I'm doing a reread on that. Uh, I'm also doing, uh, I, this is a little bit further back, but I'm rereading Umbrella Academy ahead of the uh, Netflix series coming out because I'm curious how that's changed. Yes, yes. Um, yes, yes, keep going. Yes, great. <laughs> uh, I'm really liking what uh, Brian Bendis is doing on Action Comics. Um, I used to be a newspaper reporter, so I really like sort of his his uh, tight focus on the Daily Planet and everything going on there. Uh, and I'm really enjoying, uh, I know there's only two issues out, but uh, his work on Young Justice, him and uh, Pat Gleason, that's been really fun and really kind of fluid and kinetic and exciting and enthusiastic. Uh, Donny Cates on Venom, of course. Um, that is a, a wild, awesome book. Um, Southern Bastards at Image, love that book. Love that book to death. Um, Die also at Image has been really cool. Outer Darkness at Image has been really cool. Um, you wouldn't expect this from the guy who's writing Spencer and Locke, but I'm really digging Giant Days over at Boom. Um, I kind of got into that recently and been binging it. It's been a, a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, and then, you know, every so often I go back to sort of the, 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 the oldies but goodies. Um, I just went on a, on a, on a vacation uh, before the whole publicity started for this book because I knew I was going to need it. And so I was reading uh, All-Star Superman. I was reading Next Wave. I was reading J. Michael Straczynski on Amazing Spider-Man and Thor. Um, uh, you know, my Desert Island reading, and I, I say this to anybody who will listen because it was never collected in trade, and I think that's just criminal. Uh, Devin Grayson and Roger Robinson on Batman Gotham Knights. Uh, it is available on Comixology. And – Honestly, if anybody wants to sort of get in my headspace when I was writing Spencer and Locke, that's the book to read. Um, that is just, uh, you know, it, they, uh, Devin and Roger really balance sort of psychological examination and character-driven heroics and just really heartbreaking moments featuring a character that, you know, you'd think you've seen every possible angle on. 
um, and balanced it with just some really tight pacing and some really wonderful, beautiful action. So uh, Batman Gotham Knights on Comixology. Um, and then, you know, Fraction and uh, and Aha's uh, Hawkeye, uh, Declan Shalvey and Warren Ellis on Moon Knight, uh, uh, Afterlife with Archie, uh, Brendan Fletcher, Babstar, Cameron Stewart on Batgirl. I could go on and on. <laughs> You're touching okay, on so, a lot okay, of the good okay. ones. You, you yeah. did, but so there, there is a, a controversy point out of the show, and I don't, want, I don't want to get you in trouble because you're in the, you're in the business much more than we are. So we are huge fans of Brian Michael Bendis. Yeah. He's written some incredible things. We yeah. don't feel like he's really hit his footing in DC. You seem to be a big fan of what he's doing these days. I mean, how do you feel about what he did over at Marvel? And he's made some incredible moves with all the Avengers runs that he did, X Men runs. What? What do you well, What do you think? Where, where are you really on this? <laughs> well, look, I, I I'll preface this with uh, Brian Bendis has forgotten more about comics than I'll ever know. Um, that guy is prolific, and he's a workhorse. I mean, you know, you you he takes on so many books, and the biggest misconception that I always had as a critic versus you know actually making a book on my own is you know it'd be easy to say as a critic, oh, somebody you know phoned in a book, all right, uh, and I think. It's a lot harder to phone in these books than you'd think. But even if somebody does phone in, I'm not going to say phone in, doesn't give their full 100%. Everybody else in that team sure is. So I think for Bendis, you know, there have been books of his that I have, have been a little cold about. Um, I'm not a huge fan of decompression, and I know that's kind of his trademark. Um, you know, but there's books like Ultimate Spider-Man. Uh, the uh, relaunch of Ultimate Spider-Man with David LaFuente, I think, is like a criminally underrated a uh, couple of arcs um and i you know i think it's finding for me personally as just a reader and as a writer and as somebody who's been a critic you know for me uh for for bendis the thing that i've he, he's 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 taken a wide approach to a lot of different genres and a lot of different properties so you can find things uh, uh that you'll like even if there are other books that kind of leave you cold and you can say that about every creator i I, i'd say that's had a a a wide enough body of work um so you know i do think the dc universe and the marvel universe they are tonally very different i always consider one to be like classical and the other to be like jazz um and you know so i do think that you know certain books play more to his strengths than others uh that's why i kind of like young justice as much as i do and that's because uh, you're able to sort of have that irreverent banter. You've got the teenage characters, which he's so good at. Um, and you don't need to be quite as focused on the plot or what's going to, you know, what's the impact going to be on these characters forever. It's sort of like an ancillary spinoff, not quite Titans book. So, you know, you just get to see these characters that you haven't seen in a while. And you get to sort of see Bendis be really enthusiastic about characters like Tim Drake or Cassie Sandsmark or Bart Allen. Um, and it's hard not to kind of feel that enthusiasm, especially when, you know, as as Brian Bendis deserves, he gets the lion's share of the best artists in the business. Um, I think that's one we'll I, ultimately revisit. Um, yeah. Young Justice. You know, we, I think we, re- we, we re- we've reviewed a couple of his number one since going to D.C. And I think our biggest gripe uh, simply has been <laughs> is that he's just done. It feels like they got him at D.C. and they were like, hey, here's, you know, seven titles to start working on. Um, right. So you know right. he's done Superman stuff and Young Justice, and he's put out a couple of new creator-owned things. Right. It's been sort of all over the place, and that you know that's right. we love Bendis, 
And, and we did talk before Young Justice came out that 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 something like that would would probably suit suit him wonderfully. Right, uh, it's finding I, the right books for the right creators' skill sets. Right. And I think that's something that that all the companies sort of need to keep an eye on. Um, and you're right. Like, like for example, you, you know, it, it's true. Like, I have not actually, I haven't, I haven't kept up with his new creator owned at DC. And you know, uh, and like for example, I think his run on action versus you know, I like his run on action more than I like his run on Superman, uh, because I think action sort of focuses on the character, uh, the street level character stuff, which he's so good at. Whereas Superman, you know, I get it. Like people have an expectation for Superman of these big epic stories. You think of All Star Superman, or you think of Superman Birthright, which is another terrific Superman story. Um, and that, you know, I don't know if that plays to his strengths. I think that sort of leans towards the, his decompressed side a little bit more, uh, because when you have this sort of big crazy action, you don't have a whole lot of room for that you know, very, you know, insightful, biting dialogue that Bendis is known for. Or if you do have, you know, all that, you know, dialogue, then it looks a little out of place. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I, I, I mean, but at the same time, like, I think he's done some some cool stuff over at Metropolis. I think um, I, 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 I've sort of was thinking before he joined, I was kind of like, you know, I love Pete Tomasi's run on the, on the series, but I feel like it kind of boxed in future writers a little bit yeah uh, you know if you think of how many writers didn't you know really want to spend time writing about mary jane over at spider-man think about all the writers who now have to write about lois and a kid um <laughs> and so i'm curious how how bendis is going to handle that for the long term um but uh you know i i think superman and i you know i would love to write superman i would i would probably give like an organ to write superman uh, you know i grew up in the midwest i used to be a newspaper reporter i feel like that that's like my 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 my, my jam yeah, I'm, an alien. I'm an alien <laughs> <laughs> he, he's he's a he's a tough character to write right now um i think in you know sort of given the current continuity landscape and sort of the double shipping uh requirements and so i you know i think in a lot of ways, you know, I, I think Bendis feels like the right choice. It's sort of the kind of curveball that you'd throw out there. And it's sort of a writer with a big name uh, working at DC. And I think, you know, a big name writer, I think big name characters deserve a big name writer like that. Um, mm. You know, I'm, I, so I, I honestly, you know, granted, it's still very early on. And, you know, there's only out of three of his books that I'm really reading. But I'd say Bendis's sort of hit to miss ratio, as far as I'm concerned, is actually much higher at DC than it was in Marvel. Um, I could just be holding a grudge that he's since <laughs> stolen uh, Chris Anka away from Runaways as well. So, yeah, I, I'm just well, upset about that. Uh, how long is he uh, doing the Young Justice, or is this a forever thing? That, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know the answer to it. I saw he was drawing something with Young Justice, but honestly, like you know, Anka is a beast. I, yeah. I, mm. I like. Yep. I I loved his work on Runaways, um, but I want to see him draw a Robin, man. Like that sounds rad as hell. <laughs> <laughs> but so, what is your favorite Robin? While we have you, oh, Tim man. Drake. Uh oh. Okay. Tim Drake. Um, uh, Dick is like so. I I won't say Dick Grayson. I I I already grew up with him as Nightwing, so I kind of like him as the older brother for all the uh, the Robins. Um, but Tim was my Robin growing and uh, i kind of liked him as the everyman who he wasn't as good of a fighter 
as anybody else like you know he's he's sort of like this ordinary kid who's adopted into a family of ninjas and they're like oh well you know you can fight and he's like no i can't um i'm not an acrobat and i didn't like travel the world for 15 years learning martial arts and no i didn't even like grow up in you know the mean streets of gotham where like you know i was stealing tires to eat Um, (laughs) the suburbs um and i just you know i kind of got into this job because i was the smartest person here and uh so i always really appreciated that and i kind of appreciated the way that jeff johns approached the character in teen titans uh sort of building up uh tim as a more anxious neurotic kind of figure which i think makes sense if you were batman's ward you would come out a little weird yeah Uh, you know so tim tim's my favorite i think this will be kind of controversial uh you know a little bit of Damien goes a long way for me. Uh oh! Oh my god! The, them's fighting words. I, Recording I, has ended. I really <laughs> liked. I really liked um, what Grant Morrison did with him. Uh, I was a little disappointed that they brought him back. Um, I because I, I liked that idea of Batman having a dead Robin that kind of reminded him like what his limitations were and what the cost of his work on crime was. What about, what about Jason Todd? Well, that was, I, that, I was I was disappointed when they brought him back as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and, and that's why that's why when when they brought when they when they killed off Damien, I thought, oh well, he'll he'll sort of fill in that uh, that uh, Jason Todd uh, uh, you know void. And I, I remember actually talking with a, a, a buddy of mine, Michael Mokio, who's now a, 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 an editor over at Boom. And I remember he and I had a bet that we were talking. Um, he he was like. He's like, I bet you that Damian Wayne is going to be back within nine months or within a year. And I, I was like, no way, not a chance. No way. They built up his death so much. And then Damien's back in nine months. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm clearly so uh, 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 off the radar here. I, I will um, admit, as, as Damien's probably biggest fan, that he, yeah. story-wise, they probably did bring him back too fast. If it, if it makes you feel any better, Damien is my girlfriend's favorite Robin. Oh, uh, She's got great taste. Uh, she, hear that? I assume I, she's a wonderful lady. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's because I, I I I refer to him when I, whenever he speaks. I I reference him in uh, Tom Felton's Draco Malfoy voice. <laughs> I was like, wait till my father hears about this. Uh, that's that's how I think of of, of Damien every single time. Is just like as just like a pint sized like evil mastermind, which I dig. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think I mean he feels a little like Wolverine to me right now where he's yeah. like everywhere where he's, uh-huh. you know, he's well, uh, yeah, they kill Wolverine. It's like, we're getting a break. And then they bring an old man, Logan, he's everywhere. So I feel like <laughs> there, was, there was never a break. There was never. Yeah. A break. Yeah. And then you had X 23 is the new Wolverine. And so I, I, that's why I say like, I like Damien. I think there's some really cool stuff, especially if you lean into the Batman six, six, six stuff, which mm-hmm. I really like. Um, but I think it's sort of, he's one of those characters that like, He's like the new gods to me, where like if you target him and you use him really well, you can leverage him to some really cool stuff. But if you kind of don't have a, 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 a solid plan for him or you use him a lot, it it hurts the character a lot. Yeah, I don't like him in, in Teen Titans right now. Right. right. I, I probably read everything that he's ever in and Teen Titans has, has never stuck with me. So um, but we both read Super Sons and that's, you know, that's been that's been fun. Yeah, um, yeah. 
I feel like Super Sons to me is sort of the the the, the most elastic the character goes for me. Yeah, I can know, see because that. he's so dark and brooding. He plays off nicely with John, but is he a leader of a team? I don't know. I haven't been convinced of that yet myself as a reader. Yeah, I won't hold it against you. All right, at the risk of making this all about Robin, because I don't, <laughs> I don't give a shit about Robin. Uh, <laughs> so we have a segment on the show that we always do, and granted, it's been a few years since our last go around this way, which we call Rapid Fire, which is basically it's a series of questions that is designed to just to get you thinking. There's no right or wrong answer. It's mostly about what is your first response to these questions. They're non sequitur. Some make absolutely no sense, but we okay. want to know how you're thinking. Are you oh, ready? God. All right, let's do this. Okay, then nothing, nothing scandalous. We hope. So after after Calvin and Hobbes, which we assume is your favorite, what is yeah. your favorite comic book strip? Mm, Foxtrot. Okay, that's a little, that's that's like pretty, pretty random. Okay, are we going Andy Cap? Uh, best anthropomorphic big cat: Tony the Tiger or Snagglepuss? Mm. Uh, Snagglepuss, circa Mark Russell, but before Mark Russell, Tony the Tiger. He's great. <laughs> I knew that was gone. Uh, thank you very much. Spencer <laughs> for Hire or Spencer Tracy? Ooh, uh, Spencer for Hire. Dick Tracy or Dick York? Dick Tracy. A dream of genie or bewitched? Bewitched by a nose, but that's a Ooh. tough one. Oh, I see what you did oh, there. <laughs> okay, all right. Lock and key or Psylocke? Uh, Psylocke, only because nobody ever convinces our book for Psylocke. That, that, that was a question I would, I would have had for you is how hard is sometimes promoting the book with Lock and Key and Spencer and Locke being, being out Usually there at the same time? Too hard. If, if anything, more people say, oh, is this a black sad spinoff or is this a con- <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, sure it's the black sad constantine crossover nobody asked for <laughs> what is the difference between pac-man and ms pac-man really uh, a bow thank you perfect jesus christ yeah that was the perfect answer did you watch wayne world wayne's world the movie as a child yeah is that okay she has a bow on her head that's it Yep. <laughs> uh, best comics related TV show happening right now. There's a bunch. Oh, um, mm, um, having seen the first two episodes of Umbrella Academy, uh, that's the first one that's sticking to mind. I did. I need to catch up on Deadly Class, though. I really like the pilot. So you've seen Same the first series. two of Umbrella Academy. I have. I, I got. I, I went to a screening yesterday, God damn. and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Is there? I'm I'm like oh, twitching, okay. twitching for yeah, yes, I, I, I have more, <laughs> more, more questions and more questions. <laughs> Just about that. Uh, big two. Which one do you really prefer? Well, I got my start as a DC Comics intern. So I, you know, I do, I do lean. I, I, I would love to write DC characters, but um, I also grew up. Spider-Man's my all-time favorite fictional character. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm really torn. I, I, I guess I'd lean towards Marvel barely. But as a writer, I see uh, 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 I see more avenues over at DC. I mean, I feel like you got the journalism comic thing on lock. There's that yeah. word again. Yeah. <laughs> Brenda Star, all of them. Okay, mm-hmm. are there really too many comics? There you uh, go. Uh, <laughs> there's there's uh, I, there's there's no such thing. And you know, while there, you know, not every comic is built for every reader. I think that's the beauty of having uh, so many comics and so many publishers and so many creators and so many avenues like Kickstarter and the web and Indiegogo and Patreon is um, there are there is a comic for everyone and everyone is a comics reader. They just don't know it yet. That's what we say. Uh, you know, we review the, the, the number one issues each week. Um, you know, even if we say something, if we give something an unfavorable review to us, so we simply say it just wasn't for us. 
Nothing's no. ever nothing's ever really that bad. And and creating any comic that may get bad reviews is more than I've ever done. So yeah, well, I think the the, the thing that I always had to rem- remember as a critic is uh, you know first off, I don't consider snark to be a substitute for substance, but also that you know just because somebody has created a comic that you don't like, it's not a moral failing on their part. It's not to say that there aren't some comics that you know are kind of coming from a wrongheaded or boneheaded place and to be honest most of those it's not like intentional it's just you know somebody wasn't thinking or somebody didn't catch it or the editor didn't do anything but um you know i i think that uh you know people are working hard on these books especially the double shipping ones i mean it's like baseball no one is going to bat a thousand i'm never going to bat a thousand brian michael Uh, bendis doesn't bat a thousand yeah testify and so you know i i think you just have to remind yourself that like there are some comics it's just not for you there are some creators who are just not for you and you can just live your life without like going on a crusade about it like you know there are some writers who i don't want to read their books it's they're just not for me but I usually live my life without thinking about it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is a nice way to live. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know. I don't think there are, are a whole lot of books out there that like demand you to sort of go out on a rampage if you don't like it. I mean, you know, there's life's too short. There are plenty of other comics out there that you can enjoy. Right. And well, we are, we're happy to, to give Spencer and Locke your comic specifically the, the thumbs up from this show. Uh, you know, we mentioned yeah. our last episode, it was a great quick read through volume one. You know, we, we see the darker tone in the second volume. I think we're both excited to see, you know, where you have things going next. And we're, you know, we're super, um, super grateful to have you on the show and, and, and run us through what you have coming up. And, you know, before we even let you go, you know, you know, pimp it out, give us the details of, you know, I think it's April, what the specific date is, when order cut off. That Diamond has right now. Um, so I believe our final order cutoff would be early March. Um, and, uh, yeah, you can call your local comic shop and pre-order Spencer and Lock 2, number one. Uh, we have three covers for our first issue, uh, the Diamond Codes, which are on page 236 of the February previews catalog, in case your store wants that. Uh, it's Feb 19-1309 for Jorge Santiago Jr.'s main cover. Uh, Feb 19-1310 for Mon House's Orange and Teal variant. And Feb 19-1311 for Joe Mulvey's American flag variant. And honestly, they're all uh, equally priced. They're each $3.99. So you can't go wrong with any of these covers. You can't go wrong with all three of these covers. Uh, The thing that I I like to tell readers is that pre-orders make or break books like ours. And Action Lab has told us that as long as our sales are not in the toilet, they would be interested in us doing a volume three. So if anything, pre-orders are more crucial this time than they were for our first arc. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't take long to call your shop or, uh, you know, just show them our Twitter feed. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Spencer and Locke, just one word. And, uh, that helps us out a ton. You know, we really are counting on our readers. Uh, it's because of our readers that we're back for a sequel and, uh, fingers crossed we'll be back for another one. Awesome. I, what I got out of that was that Action Labs is good with encouragement. If your shit's not in the toilet, we'll keep selling it for you. <laughs> Very encouraging of us. I think, I think it's because I'm so enthusiastic and I keep cornering the publisher for like half an hour at a time telling him, here's what we're going to do. And he's, uh, okay, go for it. 
Uh, uh, even even so, I mean, we're, we're fans. I mean, I'm definitely a convert. I uh, I will I'll pay for it going forward. I think it's I think it's great. I'm, I'm oh, a, I'm, I appreciate I'm, it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's been great having you on. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you, thank you so much, and uh, thanks for having me.